Well, good morning, El Paso Bible Church, and welcome to those of you online who are watching us. Oh, another greeting appropriate for today is Shana Tovar, which means a good and sweet new year to you because it's Rosh Hashanah in, uh, in Israel. The devout Jews are celebrating a new year, the year 5783. And uh, they celebrate this time as the time when uh, God created Adam and, Adam and Eve. So a sweet and good Jewish New Year to all of you. All right. We don't celebrate that. That's just a public service announcement for those of us as Christians who support Israel. Let's look at our, Bi our Bibles, our, uh, <laughs> our bulletins. Hopefully you've, uh, you received a bulletin when you walked in, and uh, it identifies all, all of the activities of the church coming up this week. One thing that uh, I'll advise the men about in November, first uh, Saturday in November, we'll be having a BBB, Bibles, Beef, and Brew event here on a Saturday evening. So you can uh, uh, look forward to that also. As well as the these, these activities of the church are busy, busy, busy this week, so all of those are outlined in our, uh, in our bulletin. If you want to open your Bibles to John 15, verses 4 and 5, we're going to read there what Jesus has to say, and uh, then we'll, sing to, we'll pray together, and then we'll sing together, okay, before we uh, uh, have our preaching today. So John 15, verses 4 and 5, Jesus says, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. Blessed be the reading of the, the word of God. Let's bow our heads together, we'll pray together, and then we'll sing together. Father, we do begin our service today with an acknowledgement that uh, you, Lord, are the Lord of all, the Lord of creation, and the Jews are celebrating creation today. We celebrate it every day, Lord. We celebrate knowing that through that creation, you have provided a way for us to uh, have fellowship with you and to have eternal life. So we praise you for that. Lord, we're here also to uh, thank you for the blessings that you bestow upon us every day. For if we were left to our own devices and the devices of the world, uh, who knows how bad things would be. I just can't imagine without your hand, your Holy Spirit among us, Lord, I just can't imagine how bad things would be. But we thank you, Lord, for the the intervention of your Holy Spirit in our lives, in our world. Father, I also pray for those who can't be with us today, who might be out sick, who are ill or ailing, or who might also be traveling, Lord. Pray for those folks that they'd be able to come back and fellowship with us on another day, another time. Pray for uh, Gloria Thomas. I know that uh, um, there's been an issue with her lungs, and so we pray for her specifically. And again, uh, with others who can't be with us. Pray for healing for all of those who need that healing today. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray and begin our service of singing. Amen. Amen. Good morning. Would you stand with us? Time of worship.
is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ's solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. His lovely face I rest on His unchanging grace In every high and stormy gale My anchor holds within the veil On Christ the solid rock I stand All other ground is sinking sand All other ground is sinking
Lord 
We were the beggars, now we're royalty. We were the prisoners, now we're running free. We are forgiven, accepted, redeemed by His grace. Let the house of the Lord sing praise. Come on, sing it out. We were the beggars, now we're royalty.
You may be seated. Well, good morning. Glad to be back with you after we were gone for a Sunday. Uh, most of you all know probably, I think by now, that we were visiting our son and daughter-in-law in Lubbock, and so we were worshiping at Cornerstone Bible Church with them on Sunday. Had a good time there, uh, and they're doing well, just in case you all are wondering. Usually people are going to ask, but they're doing real well. School's going well, and, uh, and they're happy and worshiping and serving in their church there. And so uh, we were happy to do that, and thank you for giving us the freedom to do that. And I know you were, you were blessed by Jacob's message uh, last week. Uh, we want to pray this morning. I know Steve already did so, but, um, you know, we got shocked, I think, out of praying for health concerns during COVID. We forgot that there were other ones, um, ongoing ones, I think. And so we need to all take it to heart that we ought to be praying for those issues that we know of uh, in our body. Uh, the surgeries that are taking place, and the ongoing therapy and healing that, that is needed. Um, and so, I don't know. Children, you want to pray with us? Usually I dismiss you for children's church. What do you think, Kaylee? You want to pray with us? I think you do. Okay, let's pray. <laughs> I'm just letting her be y'all's spokesperson because she's on the front. All right, so let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this day. We do thank you for your grace to us. We thank you for your mercy, uh, which we do understand is different. We thank you for not giving us what we deserve all the time and giving us grace instead, giving us the blessings uh, that you have chosen to favor us with. Father, we pray this morning for those who are struggling uh, in their lives, either with direct health concerns, but Father, also the, the emotional and spiritual concerns that come up in people's minds uh, when they're suffering physically. We know it's hard to separate those things in the person uh, that we are. Father, we ask for courage and comfort. Uh, We ask certainly for healing and restoration in every case. Uh, Father, we think of those who are currently in the hospital this morning and uh, and those who are recovering from uh, procedures even recently. Father, we, we ask for restoration unapologetically we ask for healing and for life and life abundant. We thank you for it. Um, And Father, we look forward to seeing the answers to those prayers. Father, understand that you are sovereign over all things and that you give good things, that you work them all together for the good of those who love you. And we are here to say this morning that we love you. And so we anticipate the good that you have to work through your sovereign will. Father, we love you. And we thank you for the good gifts you've given to us this morning. One of which is your time in your word this morning. And we thank you for it. In your son's name we pray. Amen. All right, children, now you can go to Children's Church. Thanks for praying with us, being all grown up and stuff. Y'all remember where you're going? Did y'all go to Children's Church last week? Y'all look like you're confused. They never looked that confused. Like kind of, like you dumped a bucket of cats out. All right. Well, good morning again to you. We're going to be in First John this morning, as I mentioned. And I feel like I've been gone a long time. That's what happens when you preach every Sunday. You miss one, and it feels like a year. Um, but we're in this epistle, right, of First John. And I think it is helpful to remind us 
structurally, if not formally. I mean, John doesn't say, here I am expounding upon John, my Gospels, chapter 15. But if you remember the topic in the Gospel of John, chapter 15, that Steve read from this morning about abiding in Christ, and we have been recently through the Gospel of John, so it should be fairly fresh, the nature of abiding in Christ, uh, that we abide in Him. We're the branches who abide in the true vine, and by that, much fruit is produced by Christ in us, right? That's the key there is to abide. And that is functionally overlaps a lot with the topic of 1 John. Remember that a lot of people treat 1 John improperly. Um, and that's the nicest term that I can come up with it for it. Is improperly nice enough? Am I? Because sometimes I misjudge myself. I think I'm being nice and people think I'm being mean. Sometimes it's my face. But this is all I got, folks. So try to ignore the face. I'm just saying improper because it is, it is a drastic impropriety that they commit against this text by, from the very beginning when they're in the first chapter of 1 John. And John says, I write these things to you that we may have fellowship. And our fellowship is God the Father and Christ and Jesus. We want you to join with us. And they think he's writing to unbelievers because they have misunderstood what fellowship is. They misunderstood that. This book is not about justification. It is not about how to go to heaven when you die. It is about how to live a life in this world free from discipline and free to enjoy the abundance of obedience in fellowship with each other, in fellowship with God the Father, in fellowship with Christ Jesus. It's a big difference, isn't it? Because you make a horrible, awful, awful mess of this thing, trying to make it into a gospel tract about how to get somebody who's an unbeliever to heaven when they die. We're not there yet, but we're getting there. And we're going to make that distinction as we go, because it is important. Um, it's about this point in a series on a, on a book like First John that people start bringing me their commentaries. Trust me, I have them. I have read them. Nine out of ten, probably higher than that, are wrong on First John because they have made this critical error from the very beginning and have ignored the subject matter of First John. Right? That's a big error, isn't it? So you ever watch a commercial and you have no idea what it's advertising? Like there were commercials in the 90s especially. I have no idea to this day what they were advertising. They were awesome commercials, spent a lot of money. Somebody probably bought something because of them, but I didn't. But God's Word isn't like that. God's Word has an identifiable topic, and most of it is actually about this, how to live your life in an abundant way in fellowship with each other, in fellowship with God the Father and with Christ Jesus and with the church. And that's what this is about, not justification. So in a short form, we, we identify, and today we're getting to the test. We've had the prelims, right? Did you all love that? Remember, did you all take, everybody here take the SAT or the ACT? Yeah, you've taken a few standardized tests, haven't you, Dr. Truman? Yeah, uh, I've, I've taken a few standardized tests. The most painful part of every standardized test is the prelim, right? This is your number two pencil. This is the bubble. Make sure that you spell your name right. Make sure that you do this. Make sure that you do that. Blah, 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 blah. Make, and then your teacher has told you leading up to it, make sure that you understand that if you don't do well in this, it doesn't mean you're stupid. Well, thanks. All of that. All, it's kind of, it gets kind of painful, Right? But once you get to the actual test, if you understand what it's for and what it's not for and what it does, then it's not that painful. You just go, okay, 
It is what that is. That's what it, the truth is. And that's how we need to approach the letter to, uh, that John writes here, 1 John. It is a test. It is a test. It's a test of fellowship, not the test of life. It's not to test whether you have eternal life or not. It is not to test whether you're going to heaven when you die or not. It's not. Not even here. But it is a test, a test of fellowship, whether I am in fellowship or under discipline. Really, the only two options. You know, we say this a lot here. I, well, I say we. I'm imputing this to you guys. I'm the one that says it. Maybe you should start saying it too. God loves all of his children. Amen? Amen. Everyone likes that one. That means God disciplines all of his children. Amen? Well, I was a little less that time. God disciplines all of his children because he loves them all. A wise father, a good father, a loving father does not allow his children to grow up without discipline. So some preliminary information, right, he gives us. We are going, we want fellowship because fellowship is the key to completeness or fullness of joy. Nobody I've ever met says I want less joy in my life. Ever. They may not even know what joy is, but if I tell them, do you want the most joy you can get in your life? They say yes. They may not know what the key to that is. They may not know the Bible verses for it. They may not have ever been inside church, but they know they want joy and they want all of it that they can get. But John tells us, he says, we're going to sin. And sin is not joyful. Sin is not joyful for the person you committed against. It's not joyful for the person committing it. He says, we're going to do that. And we should not delude ourselves about that. Right? If we say that we're without sin, we're liars. Amen? There should be some amens in here, guys. I grew up Baptist. You're, you're, you know, we had amens all over the place. That's okay. It's all right. I know you meant it on the inside. We're going to sin. We shouldn't lie about that. We shouldn't delude ourselves, specifically ourselves. We should confess our sins. We should speak the same things about our sins, the individual sinful actions, right? Not the theological problem of sin, that we are sinners. That's not what we're confessing. We confess the sins, the individual actions. We speak the same things about them that God does. Now, there, there are places, uh, James five sixteen, right, that says you're supposed to confess your sin one to another. Now, there's a guy in that chapter that is sick there, right? You remember James? We went through James not that long ago, too. There's a guy that's sick there. And he says he's supposed to ask the, pray, ask the elders to come pray over him, and they're going to come pray over him. And if he has committed any sins, they will be forgiven him. Meaning this is a situation in which he's sick, because, maybe, probably, because of some sin that he committed. He is physically sick. And when the elders come and pray over him, he is healed of that sickness. And then he cautions everybody and says, you should confess sins like that before it gets to that point. Now, that's a category of sin. You should do that. Guys, if you've sinned against somebody in this body, you ought to do it. Something that we remind ourselves of uh, every, every month when we observe the Lord's table. And if you have something that you have offended or sinned against someone, that you ought to confess that before 
you take of the Lord's table. I think there's biblical precedent for that. But that's a category of sin, and not all sin fits that category. Some sins are simply against God. So who do you confess those ones to? God, because you committed them against him. So those are the ones, those are the ones that the humans don't see. And I tell my kids this because I, it took me a while to learn this. You grow up in certain environments and you become a more proficient sinner by growing up in certain environments. Do y'all know what I mean? You become smarter and better about it because people are offended by your sin and there are direct personal consequences for sinning in certain ways that are observable. But the ones that rot your guts out fast, well, nobody sees those but God himself. You can put a mask on your face when you walk into church and nobody knows that you're a prideful son of a gun. Pride will rot you out faster than anything. Any sin in the Bible. But you know what? I've never had anybody come to my office and say, Pastor, you know, I need to confess something. I'm very, very prideful. You know, if they were to come to me and say, I'm very, very prideful, they would have to prove it pretty hard. I don't, I don't look for that. That's not something that's obvious. If you run around high and drunk all the time, well then, everybody can see that. Right? Everybody thinks that's a really bad sin. You'll get sober if you stop drinking. Did you know that? It will go out of your body. I mean, like, you can process, no matter how big you are, you can process a beer an hour on average. You'll get over it. So when are you going to stop drinking the pride juice? Anybody? I mean, is there like a Capri Sun with pride in it? That you can just stop drinking that sucker in the juice box and you can get unprideful? But it'll rot your guts. You will not be in fellowship with other people walking around prideful like that. But nobody can pin it on you. You'll be like nailing jello to a wall. You have massive amounts of plausible deniability at that point. Somebody accuses you of pride. We should confess our sins so that we are forgiven. Remember, forgiven in this context is extrajudicial. It can't be about the penalty of sin, the judicial penalty of sin, because John is writing to believers who do not experience or are not subject to the penalty of sin. They're justified people. We know that because of the pronouns, at minimum, that he uses. It's we and us. You may doubt the audience's salvation, but if you doubt John's salvation, you're a fool. And he says this is a problem for we and us. We need to do that when we commit a sin. We need to confess it. That's what he says. He's writing to people who, by definition, are not subject to the judicial penalty of sin. But forgiveness, as it relates to fellowship, is extrajudicial. It is a disciplinary, in the disciplinary realm here. When you acknowledge that what you did was a sin, then you're telling God, look, I don't need the discipline for that. 
I acknowledge it as a sin. I don't need correction to bring me to that point. Does that make sense? I mean, I have six children, and so far they've turned out pretty good. But I would give them the choice. Son, you can either apologize to your mother or you can get a spanking and apologize to your mother. Amen, fathers? You are gonna, you're going to correct this. I'm going to correct it or you're going to correct it. Now, that's not mean. Frou-frou, wimpy parents these days think it's mean to force the child's will into doing something that they ought to do. The Bible says something different. The Bible says that your will needs to be mastered, that you need to master it according to biblical principles, especially as a believer, especially as a believing parent, that you need to train the child. And this is important. It would be evil. It would be wicked for God to withhold discipline when it is the only way to correct. Yes? There's a lot of sin that parents are committing against their children in this world by failing to discipline them, by throwing it to their grandparents. Amen, grandparents. I've actually had people tell me that they needed to send their kids to my house, and I said, listen, by the time you're to that point, it's probably too late. The Josh Meyer principle has to start from diapers. I can't fix what you broke for the last 15, 18 years. It's not judicial. But finally, as preliminarily, right, because that sounds a little intimidating. So when you confess, he said, when we sin, we have a paraclete. Some, most of your translations say advocate. I don't like that because I don't think it's, again, it's extrajudicial. Jesus is not standing there as a lawyer between you and God, the Father, he's standing there as your paraclete reminding you of who you are and what you are not at risk of losing when you stand before God to confess your sin and receive forgiveness, be restored to fellowship. Those are all preliminary things that we've talked about already. If, you, if those sound foreign to you, they are recorded. I think we, messed, we didn't quite have the recording working last week, but that shouldn't mess up this series anyway. You should be able to go and listen to those. And I encourage you to do that because those preliminary things are very, very important in 1 John. Extremely important. This is a difficult book that is mangled frequently by men that I respect and have a great love for. It's mangled. But the test kind of starts here. Y'all start sweating yet? Some people love tests. Other people, when I say the word test, they start having like, they start stressing out. If y'all need to, y'all start feeling queasy, I'm not sure if we have any Pepto in the, in the office, you know. No. It's a test. It's test language. You're going to apply a test to something. We have that here, verse 3. By this we know. By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. 
We got a test here. It's about knowing something, about whether we know a what and a who. We have a saying, right, that we don't know what we don't know, right? That's a fact of life. There are certain things in life that we can't know or that we don't know or that are an absolute surprise to us when they're revealed to us because we didn't know them before and we were unaware of that, right? So we ought to approach, I mean, the meaning of that phrasing is that we ought to approach things that, that are unknown with some humility, we should approach them with humility in life. But this verse doesn't say that. It says we can know something. We can know something. We can know this. There's evidence. We can know, we can know that we have come to know him. That's important phrasing. That we have come to know him in perfect tense. We had did this prior to we can have this knowledge at any point there's evidence here it's a standard that Jesus Christ himself said he said if you love me keep my commandments we said there's evidence there of your love for Christ if you love him it's evidenced in keeping commandments to know Christ in this phrasing, in this verse, or whether you know Christ or don't know Christ is the test. Now, some people will say, well, Pastor Josh, that right there, that's, that's unbeliever language. No, it's not. No, it's not. I'm going to, let me talk to you men for a minute, married men. I assume that you knew something about your wife when you got married. They have, they have no idea how to answer this question. Guys, I didn't mean to scare you. I didn't bring, you didn't come to church to get scared this morning, did you? I promise this isn't going to be that painful. Jim's got the answer. Yeah, he knew his wife. Priscilla and I dated and were engaged for five years before we got married. We were children when we started dating, and we were just barely not children when we got married. But even I would answer that way. I knew something about Priscilla. In fact, I knew a lot of things about Priscilla after five years. But I did not know her. It's been now 27 years that we've either been dating, engaged, or married. And I would say that there's still a lot to know and a lot to learn and intimacy to be gained. But when did the relationship start? January 8th, 2000. If I'd had my druthers, it would have been January 1st, 2000, so I'd never forget the anniversary. But mother-in-law stepped in and said, I can't do it on New Year's. Got to be January 8th. January 8th, 2000, I knew a few things about Priscilla, but it was that day that I said, I trust you enough to make a covenant with you till death do us part. I did not know what I know today. I do not know today what I will know in another 27 years. If I live that long, may not be looking good, I don't know. We'll see. 
trust begins the relationship. Faith begins your relationship with Jesus Christ. That's not what John is talking about. John is talking to people who have trusted in Christ, who have a legal identifying relationship with Jesus Christ, who have life in his name, who are clothed in his righteousness and in him. What he's talking about is intimacy with Christ. The relationship begins the day the covenant is made when the trust is placed in him. But you grow in knowledge. And we spend a good bit of time at El Paso Bible Church and what I call, well, everybody calls it this, but maybe you don't, disambiguation. Have you ever looked up a Wikipedia article? And it says, this article requires disambiguation. Like if you look up the Beatles, it has three references. You need to disambiguate your references. You need to know if you're talking about the British Invasion rock band, the Nazi vehicle, right, the Beetle that was developed in Germany is the people's wagon, or the insect. You need to disambiguate terms, don't you? You do it all the time naturally, but people think I'm nuts when I try to disambiguate the difference between trusting Christ and knowing Christ. The reality is, is that if you knew Christ the way that John is talking about here as an unbeliever, which is an impossibility, if you knew him, it would no longer be trust. Because trust is not sight. Faith is not sight. It's contrasted in Scripture, is it not? You cannot tell an unbeliever, know Christ, at the same time as you're saying, trust him. Because trust implies that you don't know everything. Right? Right? I don't have to trust somebody if I know everything about them. But in, in essence, I have to trust almost everybody because I don't know everything about anybody. You, know, you see that meme every once in a while. It says the book about understanding women has come out and it's this stack like this. It's actually, I think, the full Oxford Unabridged Dictionary. That's a lie book ain't even long enough. I'm in trouble. I'm in trouble now. Guys, be nice. I'll be nice. That was just a joke. Just a joke. Y'all know I'm a caveman. You're going to just have to get over it. All right. But to know him is not the same as to trust him. And that's the test. The test is whether you have grown in your knowledge of who Christ is, the nature of his grace, the nature of his mercy, the nature of his love, of his sacrifice. Do you know this about Christ? And that is something with symptoms. Because we, we say the nature of faith, faith is self-authenticating. The reason, uh, what the, you know, <laughs> stop with the big words, Pastor. Okay, it's self-authenticating, meaning that you know you believe something because you believe it. Right? There's no other evidence that is necessary for faith to be valid and true. It is true because you believe it. I believe something, and therefore I believe. So there's no, there's no test that you can be applied. There's no formula that is valid to determine that beyond your acknowledgement. Yes, I believe that. It's a beautiful thing that the gift of eternal life is based on something that simple, right? If it was any harder than that, we would all screw it up. But he says here, you have a test, whether you have come to know Christ. 
and you have intimate knowledge of who he is and how he loves you, you have, you have come to know Christ. It's not a synonym for justification. It's a synonym perhaps for loving Christ. A lot of the people I know, and I know people that hate Christ, they say they hate Christ. They do. You've, you've met them. You know people that say they, they hate God. They call themselves atheists. They're not atheists. They're misotheists, technically, most of them. They're spitting mad at God and hate his guts. And they call themselves atheists as it's kind of an insult. But you know people that even hate Christ, perhaps. But what they hate about Christ is a caricature of Christ and not the biblical Christ. You can ask them, well, what do you hate? Well, they hate that he's not a universalist. That he didn't just simply snap his fingers and say, no, everybody's going to heaven when they die. Some people hate that. I think the Bible has some choice words for people that make that kind of objection to the loving nature of God's grace. But if you come to know Christ as he is, as the true son of God, one who came to earth, who emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, did not consider, though he was equal with God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped after. Who condescended himself, is the theological term, condescended to take on the form of a bondservant in order that we could simply have life in him by grace through faith. When you come to know him, I think that's equivalent to loving him. The people that I know that hate Christ don't know him. That's important, isn't it? You can know that. You can know that you have come to know the Son of God. That's not a guarantee the pastor gave me at our wedding, by the way. He never said, if you live long enough in married life, that you will come to know everything that is valuable or to know about your wife. He said, you should continue growing in the relationship until you die. You have that privilege with no one else. No one else. And yet you can have it with the Son of God. He says, you can know that you have come to know Christ by this. You make this about somebody going to heaven when they die, it loses almost all of its significance. There's a symptom. And we live in a culture where you're not supposed to be able to say you know anything, right? Don't you? Have you seen the things uh, floating around the internet where they ask, well, what is a woman? And the most sensible answer that you can hear is actually the, the lady standing before Congress and saying, I'm not a biologist. You should listen to the others. They're way worse. Way worse. She's the most sensible of all those fools, actually. Just don't answer. You're not supposed to be able to know anything, right? See, I know that certain things are superior to others. I know that Christianity is superior to medieval death cults. 
that are running rampant in the world. Do you know that? Just try saying that on the public sidewalk loudly. You could think you're, complete, you're going nuts by the amount of input you will get that will tell you you can't know anything. There's nothing empirical that you can know. It's even invading the realm of science. Science used to be famous for saying, I don't know. That was the whole point. We don't know something, so then we're going to hypothesize, and then we're going to test. And now they're getting philosophical about it. And even when they've proven something, they won't say, we've proved it. We don't know that. But I can know things, and I can know this. I can assess the evidence. I can apply the test and come to an objective conclusion. But I want you to observe the nature. By this we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. If we keep His commandments. That is the test. Not what you've produced for Jesus. Not what buildings you built. What pastors need to listen to this. Not building programs you finished. Or butts you've got in the seats. How, many, how effective you are. I mean, this last week somebody sent me a couple of videos of some interestingly attired pastors. I said, if that's what it takes, guys, I'm out. Can't, I mean, I can't even look at myself in the mirror like that, much less step outside. Just can't do it. Just can't go there. But John doesn't say this. He does not condition it on knowing. You have come to know Christ by your level of success. Aren't you thankful for that? He says, you can know that you have come to know him because you are obedient to him. Doesn't that jive really well with John 15? Abide in me, and you will produce much fruit. He doesn't say work your butt off, Junior, does he? I mean, I do that anyway. It's a neurosis for me. I work, 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 work. But at the end of the day, I have to be able to assess that the things, limited as they are, that I have achieved are nothing compared to what Christ will achieve through an abiding believer. We're going to talk about what abiding is again because you'll probably need a reminder because that's another one that people assume is the synonym for justification. And that's not the way the Bible uses it. But it's obedience. It's not striving after a certain result. It's not achieving a certain thing. You know, the most magnificent building projects in the whole world, right? Jesus, our God stopped cold, right? Tower of Babel. Not going to do that. Cut that out. It's important. God is not interested. He is not interested in what you achieve for Him. He's not. Christ is not interested in what goals you and I meet or what they cost. He is not impressed by the bank balance that we have, that we give to Him. He's interested in obedience. And that precedent goes way back, right? You remember when Samuel walked up and heard the barnyard? 
What is the sound of all the animals there, Saul? Uh, uh, we got those to sacrifice to the Lord. God doesn't want that. He told you to destroy all those things. Obedience is better than sacrifice. I paraphrase the story, folks. Sorry for confusing you. I know y'all have the Old Testament memorized, but I don't. Obedience is better than sacrifice. It's consistent, right, with John 15. I'm the vine, you are the branches, and the one who abides in me and I in him produces much fruit. Now, I, I am swimming in certain vegetables right now in our garden. You know what I didn't do? I didn't go out and sit among the squash plants and I said, hey guys, huddle. We got to strategize how to produce the fruit. I didn't do that. Producing fruit is not a strategy. It's not a plan. It's not a structure. It's not a program. And all the people who are as disorganized as me are like, yeah! It's good that it's not based on my ability to strategize because I'm the most disorganized human that I know, quite frankly. I have no idea how I have finished the years of education and turned in papers that I have done because it's not my wheelhouse. But we can know for sure that we have understood and are know Christ simply when we obey Him. Because that's what He asks of us. We've understood what he wants of us and who he is and what his motivations are. Verse 4, the one who says, I have come to know him and does not obey his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. Now, some people think that the Bible doesn't say mean things to believers and that's something you've got to get over. Can believers be liars? Yep. Yep. Get used to the concept. Believers walking in the flesh can do all the things and worse that unbelievers can do. Does that mean they're not going to heaven when they die? Nope. I think Scripture does provide for a certain experience at the judgment seat of Christ for somebody who makes that their practice throughout their lives. So don't make this walk on all fours. Don't make it harder. Some people don't tell the truth. Some believers don't tell the truth. And some believers particularly don't tell the truth in the local church. That's how it rolls. That's how we do. That's how it goes. You can't do this for a living very long. Bill's been here at El Paso Bible Church almost since I was born, I think. 82, something. I was born in 78. So 1982, I think y'all were here. He knows this is true. People stand up right here in front and bold-faced lie. On occasion, half tragic, but don't fool yourself that it can't happen. If someone comes to me and says, I'm serving the Lord, I'm just doing what Jesus wants. And this happens as a pastor when I, am, when I find the need to correct someone. Almost always they Jesus juke me. Almost always they Jesus juke me. They want to blame this on Jesus. I'm just doing what the Lord, I'm just, this is my ministry, Pastor. I'm just doing what Jesus told me to do. 
Well, you're stacking bodies behind you in the church, folks. That is not what Jesus wants. Not literally. I'm not against stacking bodies that need to be stacked. But in the local body, if you're leaving a trail of destruction behind you emotionally, spiritually, and sometimes physically, because of the havoc you're wreaking in people's lives, you are a liar. When you say that you're doing, you know what Jesus wants you to do, and you're doing it. There's evidence for that. There's a test for that, and you have failed it. I have, I will, I will, I have failed it. If it's me, you can fail this test. It's still productive to take it, right? Because you can't correct yourself without taking it. There's evidence. We have commands, we have instructions, and, and we can tell when they've been ignored or misunderstood or misapplied. So don't try to Jesus juke your way around it. Just take the test results for what they are. They're way better than the COVID tests. I think those were like, what, 50%? The rapid ones. There's not a failure rate here. No false positives for this test. But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. God's love is perfected, completed in that person. I think it's what we call a plenary genitive. It's the love you have, meaning that it's both a subject and an object, right? So you have God's love being expressed to the individual who is then loving other people, and that whole cycle is perfected. When you've come to know Christ and to love others, the whole package of love is then perfected. It's doing what it's supposed to be doing. We know that. The way it's expressed in Scripture, right? The greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God. The second greatest is to love your neighbor as yourself. And he says, by this, we know that we are in Him. This is another one that throws people for a loop. And I'm sorry if we're going a little bit long today. We might. Well, I'm almost done. But you have to take even those phrases in context. Right? Because this is within the context of, of fellowship as the subject. It is within the epistles of John. So we need to see what does John say, what does he mean when he says in him? Does he use it the same way that Paul does? Because Paul's famous for saying in him, right? Throughout Ephesians, throughout his epistles. And when Paul says that, he means that he is talking about the, our identity in Christ. Our justification. The thing that we get simply by grace through faith. When John uses it, to me, anyway, he seems to be talking about abiding in Christ. Abiding in Christ. In fact, that's the next phrase here in the next verse. By this we know that we are in Him, and there should, that should probably go with the next verse, in my opinion. The one who says he abides in Him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. I think it's parallel to that. 
So when John says we know that we are in him, he's talking about the abiding experience. And we talked about this in the Gospel of John, but I'm going to remind you there are two facets to abiding in Christ. Only believers can abide in Christ. They're the only ones that can abide anywhere because they're the only ones that have life. Right? So when you say that to someone abiding in Christ, you're talking about the context of believers in Jesus Christ. But to abide is to rest in my identity. In other words, when I'm resting in my identity in Christ, I am no longer striving to be pleasing to Christ or to be worthy of eternal life or all the gifts that come from above that Paul talks about in Ephesians. I'm no longer striving for the things that have come to me simply by grace through faith. I'm no longer striving to be pleasing to God because I am pleasing to Him because of who I am. I rest in my identity. And we do what He says to do. And we do what He says to do. Now you have to know that that's not the way we share the gospel at El Paso Bible Church. That is not part of the gospel track. So some, somebody was asking me this morning what we believe here. We believe that grace is free. We believe that you receive a gift simply by grace through faith, and that is eternal life. It's an identity in Christ that you can never be separated from. That's at the center of all of our interpretive rubric for everything else in Scripture. And if you disagree with that, that's fine. I'm used to people being wrong. I mean, it's okay. Lots of people are wrong. I live in that world. This, isn't, this is not up for debate, in other words. I won't argue with it. But the key to fellowship, which is the key to the fullness of joy in this life, is abiding in Christ. Resting in who I am. Doing what he says to do. And I've never met anybody who didn't want that kind of joy. I've never even met an unbeliever who didn't want the most joy they could get. They just didn't know how to get it. Abiding. That if we are resting in our identity in Christ and doing what he says to do, we should experience, we should expect to experience the joy that comes with that. So that kicks a few things out of consideration, right? That if you, you can't, in order to abide in Christ, you can't doubt that you possess eternal life. If you believed in Christ. Remember, it's self-authenticating. You know you believe something because you believe it. Do you believe in Jesus Christ this morning? Yes. For eternal life? You know where you're going. If you were to, to I mean, and it has happened in churches all over the world that people didn't make it out of the worship service. You know that if you don't make it out these doors, if you don't make it up out of the pew, that you're going to be with Jesus forever. Okay then if you make it out the doors, actually, before you make it out the door, while you're still sitting here listening to me and wanting to go eat lunch, he wants you to abide. Rest in who you are and do what he says to do. You can't doubt who you are. And you can't be ignoring what Jesus says you ought to be doing and say you're abiding. But more than that, I think you know those two things, right? But more than that, you can't be wrapped around the axle about the results of your obedience either. Right? We expect life to get easy. We expect fruitfulness to soar. We expect 30, 60, 100 fold to be visible to us. But you can't get wrapped around the axle about the business that isn't yours. That's Jesus's. 
That's not abiding either. That's not resting. Because we can't experience the joys of fellowship and of abiding without those. The one who abides in him, God's love is perfected. And the one who abides in him ought himself to walk in the same way that he walked. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word, that it can be understood, uh, that, that even in the verses that we looked at today, that you provide a promise that knowledge is available, objective knowledge, that we can know that we have come to know your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for that privilege, for that gift, for the honor that it is. And it's in your Son's name we pray. Amen. Darkness has to be